when you listen to the show, if we are wrong or we don't know what we're talking about, that is perfectly fine. And you can correct us anywhere you want on Twitter, on Instagram, or on Facebook. You can find us at Not A Historian Podcast or at Not Historians. That's fine because we just jump on the internet, go to the library, talk to people, watch some interviews, and do the basic research we can just to show that two average Joes can do it. Exactly. We're not historians. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Well, maybe he walked around with jelly beans. That's what it is. Maybe he walked around with jelly beans so. I think he, and he was at the crime scene and stuff. He was like, yeah, see? Yeah, I got these jelly beans. See? Yeah. We're just two dudes that came up with an idea, and we said we should know more about the everyday world around us, like why are fear models the shape they are. In 1930, the Republican-controlled House of Representatives, in an effort to alleviate the effects of the, anyone, anyone, the Great Depression. You're ready to take notes, boys and girls. It's another episode of the Not Historians Podcast with your hosts, Desmond Dunn and Shalom Agalaba. Hi, everyone. It's another episode of the Not Historians. Today, we have with us a very special guest, our first guest, Jay Sandlin. He's currently on tour speaking at universities with his research on slavery and the golden age of social history in America. He is the creator and founder of The Novel Comics. The Novel Comics' first volume, Outbreak Mutiny, will debut in March with issues 0 through 7. The series is an alternate history with superheroes. It is, and I am so glad to be with you guys today. It's a pleasure. It's an honor. Um, Outbreak Mutiny is the first in uh, Novel Comics, which is my imprint, like DC or Marvel. It's going to be a contained universe of connected stories and characters. And it's basically a world where the population in the early 20th century uh, was exposed as having um, superpowers, a good percentage of them. Okay. And if we lived in a world where people had superpowers... You have to ask, how would the powers that be control them? How would they see them as a resource or even as slave labor? And I think uh, some of the themes and topics I'm doing uh, in Outbreak Mutiny and the novel comics would tie into our topic here today. Sweet. Yeah, that's that's super interesting to me because uh, I don't know if you've heard the other episodes of the show. And some of them aren't out yet. We record a lot in advance. But um, the whole thing started off kind of with this, my research into it was superheroes in the Civil War. So oh, that's I definitely am into that. That's great. Well, this is a bit after the Civil War. Now, in my world, there were probably superheroes back then. You don't know. <laughs> but uh, in 1898, there was the, uh, the Maine incident. The USS Maine was a ship destroyed uh, off the coast of Havana Harbor in Cuba in the... Uh, I'm sorry, I, I believe I said uh, 18, yeah, 1898, February 15th. Yeah. That was destroyed in my world by a really powerful superhero with some heat vision. Oh, cool. <laughs> cool, cool. So that was kind of hard to deny. Uh, heroes were a bit of an urban legend before then in my world. Um, it was kind of hard to, not to deny it after that was on the front page of every paper in 1898. <laughs> and, um, Germany reorganized much earlier in my timeline because of the superpowers, because Germany uh, adopted a policy of eugenics, much like the Nazis, mm-hmm. where they uh, biologically engineered, utilized, and took these superpowers and created the Reich. Uh-huh. Those are my those are my bad guys. They have uh, when the show, uh, or I'm sorry, when the story starts and. 1929, they uh, launch Operation Triple Reich, uh, basically taking out all the allies in an earlier version of World War II, which I call the first outbreak war. So that's where the story picks up. That's definitely sweet. Now, he said that it was going to be issue zero through seven. Now, is that going to be individual? Sorry. It's going to be released. The not the volumes are released a little bit differently. These are uh, these are novels. These are you know um, books. I release the issues in batches, and I call my issues. That's the name for my chapters. Okay, I, I, I was wondering if it was a trade paperback or something like that because you know no, I do comics, and I was like, no, well, uh, 
there will be trade paperback artwork for the covers, um, and that's what we're waiting for for the release. But I wanted to give an experience for fans of superheroes that would be familiar with issues, but in a novelization form. I think that's a really good idea. Excellent. And I'm actually looking forward to 1 through 7 as well. Well, hey, you guys uh, keep following me on Twitter. I'm a J Sanwin writer on Twitter. <laughs> and uh, you will get all the updates and information also at uh, jsanwinwriter.com. Okay. All right. Well, we'll certainly continue to do that. Yeah, man. It's definitely right up my alley. I, I just finished Chrono Commandos from Boom, so I can... Sweet. That is great. So uh, I guess we're just going to jump right into getting into another superhero story here today, right? <laughs> indeed, indeed. T- today's story is, I say today's story like I'm introducing uh, <laughs> a new uh, a new uh, radio show is what I'm introducing apparently. Uh, but today we're, we're going to kind of talk about the Superman versus the KKK. That's right. That's, that's today's whole topic. That's, that's the entire topic today. So... Jay, I understand that based on on the on your background, you have extensive knowledge about the the history of the KKK and how it relates to uh, our topic today. Can you kind of give us a little bit more background? That's on that? going to be so vital to understanding um, the radio serials we're going to talk about today in 1946. Um, I've listened to most of them now; they're on YouTube for free. It is Superman and the Clan of the Fiery Cross. And uh, I've listened to most of them. I've got a lot to say with you guys about that. But we do need to provide some historical context to understand the Klan in the 1940s. Now, the Klan was founded in uh, 1865. And a lot of people imagine that the Klan was on one continuous hot streak for the next century um, as far as membership, power, activity. And that's actually not the case. Um, in the early 20th century, which, you know, 1900 through 1915, um, the Klan had dwindled. They were down to just maybe a few thousand members. And something happened to reinvigor- uh, reinvigorate them well before the 40s, though. Uh, are you guys familiar with the first major motion picture yeah. of what Called the modern era. It would have been, well, it was three hours long. It was Birth of a Nation. Bingo. Yep, Bingo. Yes. Birth of a Nation. D.W. Griffith, right? Yeah. Birth of a Nation, still considered to be the first major motion picture, pioneered film techniques such as uh, panoramic long shots, iris effects, still shots, even night pro- uh, photography. It was called the mightiest spectacle ever produced, and that was in 1915 from Hollywood. Oh, oh, the title of the film's source novel was The Klansman. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it was based on the novel, Uh, yeah. Based on the novel The Klansman, yeah, they didn't reject the title because of the implications of the Klan. They said that the title was just too tame. Too tame, huh? Oh, yeah. Too tame, too tame. So just to give you guys a quick uh, bullet points of what happened in this film to uh, anyone not familiar with it. The film was set also in an alternate history, you would say. Hmm. It was in Reconstruction era, featured the birth of the peaceful and just KKK. They were the defenders of the Aryan birthright and uh, white daughters. Um, It introduced cinema's probably least subtly named movie villain, Mr. Uh, Silas Lynch, (laughs) L-Y-N-C-H, He was a mixed-race politician, of all things. Who would would ever imagine that, right? He was uh, seeking to oppress whites, and he wanted the right to legally molest uh, the white daughters of the good white men. Uh, Whites were depicted as the oppressed minority under the thumb of a black majority in construction era, whereas in reality the opposite was true. Right. And the plot featured uh, in this alternate history the Negro Party as the film's kind of like the Hydra group from Captain America. Hmm. They had taken over the South Carolina government. Um, Their primary platform was to legally have sex with white women. They were depicted as shoeless men swigging whiskey on the Senate floor and even eating fried chicken. Oh, and uh, 
Probably the most noticeable thing about this movie is the director cast white actors to play African Americans in blackface. Ah, yeah. That was directed by uh, D.W. Griffith, 1915 Birth of a Nation. And it's uh, It's also the first film shown in the White House. Uh, with I will Wilson. Wilson. Hey, and a uh, cheap plug. I'm on uh, BuzzFeed.com slash Jay Sandlin. This is from my article, uh, The Four Insanely Racist Moments in the 20th Century. Um, Birth of a Nation was the most important film in the 20th century, not just because of the reasons you gave, but it was also uh, the reinvigoration, or what you might call now the gritty reboot of the KKK. Hmm. Yeah, from the original version, which had broken down, right, from uh, Forrest. It had broken down. It it had broken down. The KKK used Birth of a Nation as the most effective recruitment tool. Um, They showed up to the, you know, we we see it now with fandoms where people dress up in Jedi robes, uh, costumes, capes, whatever. The KKK showed up to this film wearing their robes and hoods. That's disturbing. They would sit in the theater wearing the robes and the big tall hoods, which might have been uh, preventing their message from getting out to the people sitting behind them. I don't know. <laughs> but they uh, it, was, it was like a fandom. It was like a con. It was whatever. So uh, just to give you guys some more context, jump ahead a little bit. Picture yourself for a minute at uh, Dr. King's speech in, uh, you know, 1963, I Have a Dream. And you'll listen, he lists off locations in the speech. Um, One of them is Stone Mountain, Georgia. Yeah, I've been there. Absolutely. Well, yeah. And you would know then that the uh, Stone Mountain, Georgia was the spot where the not-so-invisible empire was uh, reunited. They had their great awakening, I guess you could call it, and the start of a membership boom. Um, one year after Birth of a Nation in 1916, uh, they got back together in Stone Mountain. And just 10 years later, the KKK went from just a footnote of a few thousand members to highly connected, active organization with 4 million members. That's an incredible jump. So what was the recruitment tool? I mean, was it, are you saying it was just this video, Birth of a Nation, that sparked the interest, or was there something no, else? No, I mean, you can't say it's any one thing, mm-hmm. but the purpose of Birth of a Nation, and I guess the widespread nature and the popularity of the major motion picture, it was unprecedented. Um, the author of the original novel, The Klansman, he was actually a good friend of Woodrow Wilson. The name was uh, Thomas Dixon. And uh, Dixon was very upfront about the purpose of his novel, uh, the Klansman, he said uh, proudly that the story was intended to revolutionize northern audiences that would transform every man into a southern partisan for life. Okay, yeah, that's quite the uh, that's quite the recruitment speech. I I don't even know what to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, what we can say is that so that's the background for um, when we get into the 1940s, which is where we're focusing our talk here today. The Klan had gone from a dwindling period and uh, media with the movies and storytelling brought them back up. So we get to the 1940s and uh, we're going to use the same tool to start bringing them down. Excellent. Yeah. So that that would be the Superman show, the Adventures of Superman, which is radio serial. Uh, Now, I think we all said that we've listened to this uh, most episodes, at least. Right. uh, Of the Klan, the Fiery Cross. Oh, boy. Yes, I have. Um, I love Superman. I I would go and buy the generic VHS and DVDs of the original cartoons, which were mostly like this radio show. Right. And so uh, the theme song, uh, the the organ blasting, uh, I I just loved all of it. Um, You guys start. I mean, tell me uh, some of your observations on the show, I guess. So, you know, I'll start with some of mine. You know, I... Kind of going through the um, some of the serials, I like the way that that everything kind of ties into modern day, it or rather the modern day at the time with the, with the Klan. So I think this was a real interesting tactic of of um, Kennedy. Kennedy decided that he wanted to infiltrate the the KKK, and he and he did so. And then he also used this show as a means to 
um, as a means to bring down the clan by giving out their secret handshake, uh, giving out some of their. Did you know what that was? Uh, the way I took it was the secret handshake was the hand over the heart, crossing the two fingers, and uh, raising the hand towards the the fiery cross. And that was used in episode two right. when one of the characters. Um, hey, before we get too into the uh, the details of the show, I, I, have a, I just have an observation. Might be a little bit of a digression. Um, did you guys catch the? Uh, well, I mean, if you listen to the show, you couldn't forget the constant advertisements. Pep cereal. You <laughs> talking no, about pep? Pep cereal. It's <laughs> a wonderful pep cereal. I, I got to tell a quick funny story. So, if you can't understand us, we're saying Kellogg's Pep P E P. The Sunshine cereal was the sponsor for the show, and the thing about the Pep cereal uh, being the Sunshine cereal is uh superman does get his powers from the sun right um but the entire time i listened to these ads probably in the first three episodes i had no idea what they were saying i thought they were saying pet p-e-t cereal (laughs) so i kept thinking this announcer wanted kids in the 40s to eat their pets (laughs) you're not alone i thought the same thing and we went. We went and actually tried to find some. Apparently, it's been discontinued. You can't. You can't get any pet. Well, it's if it's been t- discontinued, it's because they kept shouting at the kids to eat it all. <laughs> you have to eat it, it all because so they, they, it says, "Kids, make sure you eat all your pet, especially nowadays, because we're sending these grains overseas." That's right. And I'm just thinking, oh, I, I've never heard an ad campaign that was not as it was so obsessed with not only getting you to buy the product, but to eat every bite. <laughs> um, yeah, they knew what they were doing. And, and so I, I'm thinking in the first three episodes that it's pet cereal. <laughs> and then the secondary product they advertise is for Kellogg's growth pet cereal, like the for actual pets. For pets, yeah. <laughs> So I thought that this was some like circular uh, conspiracy to fatten up the pets and have the children eat them. <laughs> Kellogg's was gritty. Was yeah, gritty. that was yeah. grinded <laughs> it. Eat, eat the dog. War's on. Sorry no. for the digression, but that was that's actually just part of the culture back then with how advertisements were different, how it was done, very verbal. Um, obviously, the medium allowed for that because, you know, you had to speak what you were um, selling. Right. Um, very instructional in the advertisements. It was like, I got to give you all this information about the product. Um, they, they kept saying, nowadays, it's important to eat all your pep. I wondered if that meant in the past it wasn't important. It was just important now, you know. I, I don't <laughs> So, uh, but uh, Des, you mentioned um, Kennedy. And uh, just to give a little background, so Stetson Kennedy's a uh, pretty remarkable guy. Passed away in 2011, age 94. Wow. He was a pioneer in folklore collecting. He loved these bits of Americana, obscurity, the esoteric. Um, he would go around and in his age 21, um, he had attended the University of Florida. Uh, he left to join the Florida Writers Project, age 21, and he was put in charge of folklore, oral history, and ethnic studies. So oral history is uh, primarily what I do as an historian. Um, I I just applied for a grant. I'm at the University of North Alabama, go Lions, and uh, we applied for a grant to go to Texarkana, for me to go and interview the last living relative of a World War II veteran I spent some time interviewing last semester. Um, Stetson Kennedy would do the same kind of thing. He would go around uh, the country or Florida collecting people's interviews. Uh, you know, he would collect their relics, pictures, photos, uh, anything of interest for the Florida Writers Project. And in the 40s, Kennedy noticed the cultural shift that we talked about uh, through birth of a nation, through massive recruitment, and through a general overall open racist tone in the South. He saw all this, and he wanted to find out why is this happening. Um, good history. Uh, I have a, a I had a mentor. He passed away in 2014, but professor of mine, uh, Dr. Nelson, used to always say good history is intellectual history. 
what he meant by that, uh, I, have, I have to get my, my character right to talk about Dr. Nelson. He he was from Alabama as well. I'm from Alabama, uh, but he sounded like Richard Nixon. <laughs> That's not a knock on him, of course, to compare. He just he's talked like Richard Nixon, and, and he uh, he came in class every day, and he would say, uh, "Well, good morning, students. Beautiful day here at North Alabama." And uh, we're going to talk about uh, good history is intellectual history. You know, what he meant by that was in history, you have to find out not just the what, the where, the when, or the how. But you got to find out the why. So that was what Dr. Nelson taught me more than anything was to find the why. And that was what Kennedy was looking for when he wanted to see why the KKK was so prevalent. Because, guys, when you think about it, it's kind of a silly idea. Just take it completely out of context. Forget what you know about their violence, their beliefs. We've got men dressing up in white sheets, going out in the middle of the night and doing secret handshakes, rituals, passwords. It, 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 I would call it kind of city, silly, except I like to go to comic cons. <laughs> <laughs> Same here. Right. So when you take it on the surface, it's, it's a very sinister idea with some odd trappings. So, Kennedy, you already referenced this. He infiltrated the KKK in the 40s. He infiltrated them. He learned some of their secrets. Um, some of those were, let's see, I have one of them for you here. There was a secret question the Klan would ask each other when they met one another. If you met a man and if you wanted to know if he was a Klansman, does I would walk up to you if I'm a Klansman and I want to know if you're one. And I'd hold out my hand and I would say, uh, hello, I'm looking for a Mr. Ayak, as in kayak, A-Y-A-K, which stood for, are you a Klansman? Hmm. And if you were, you would reply with, yes. I also know a Mr. Akai, A-K-A-I, -A -A which stood for, a Klansman am I. Interesting. That's that's real similar to to kind of how the James Bond catchphrases came about. So I, I think that's right. yeah, that's really interesting. Well, it was part of the secret society. It was part of the esoteric, and it was part of the unknown that they liked to surround themselves in. Hmm. That's why they hid themselves in masks. Because when a thing is unknowable, it's scary, and that's what they wanted to surround themselves in was this air of mystique. Hmm. Um, the unknown, you wondered what was going on beneath the hoods, within the meetings, within the grand, I don't know, the, the grand wizard, the council, um, all of that. They hid it behind a wall of secrecy and your imagination became much worse than anything that uh, would actually be, you know, behind there, hmm. aside from the death and subjugation and all the things they did. You wondered what happened in private. So Stetson uh, Kennedy was obsessed with what happened with him in private. He spent years infiltrating them. Um, you can Google and check out some Google images. You'll see pictures of him in the white robes and the hoods. Um, he did fit the part. He looked like a uh, what they would call a true American. Now, we listened to the show. We heard that term used a lot. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. That was their big catchphrase. It was. Right. The Klan uh, in the show, on uh, the show is now, um, to get to the show, in 1946, Kennedy did this long study for years, and he found that nobody was that interested. Uh, he went to some newspapers with it. He went to some other places, and they either said, we think you're too speculative. Um, this is, a lot of this is conjecture. Maybe there were high-ranking Klan officials in the places where he was trying to peddle the story. I don't know. <laughs> That's what's scary. And that was also part of what he wanted to find out, is just how deep do the Klan's roots go in our government? Right. Now, I heard that was a big part of it because he worked with the Anti-Defamation League, and that was part of their interest was the government ties that maybe they had. They were very interested in that. But as far as getting the story out to the general public, he faced a... I, I guess a challenge of, an, of uh, apathy. So he approached the one man that any of us call on when we need help. He called Superman. And uh, he decided to go and uh, he suggested to the Superman radio show, which was very popular, 
that they make some episodes about Superman taking on the KKK. And they love the idea. Uh, they had to produce episodes every day back then. It wasn't like the weekly shows or the monthly comic books we have now. Um, this story ran for 16 episodes, and they ran one day after another. I, I, I guess they hadn't learned the art of the rerun yet. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Actually, reruns came around on television with I Love Lucy. That's right. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I Love Lucy. I Love Lucy. You know what's funny is DeSulu, which is also Lucy. It's her company. Produced Star Trek. Of course they did. And Desi Lu, uh, Lucy herself was responsible for Star Trek's third season. There you go. Yeah, it, she was all that was keeping it on the air for a while, which was crazy because Star Trek did great with the male demographic, but hey. Well, they tried Spock for the ladies and it didn't work out, I guess. Well, hey, it's caught on since. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it definitely picked up a little bit of steam. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just, it's illogical, but uh, it's out there. <laughs> And, you know, Lucy met Superman in an episode. That's right. They crossed over. They did cross over. One of the early universal crossovers. Uh, you could call this a crossover since Superman crossed over with the KKK. Yeah. Um, did you guys notice this? That uh, for all these episodes and the title of the show, even The Adventures of Superman, Superman appears very little. Yes. Right. If at all. <laughs> Um, it was actually six episodes into the 16 um, total before uh, Clark even puts on his costume, I believe. It may have been six or seven. Um, it, I kind of lost track after a while. And before that, he only used his powers in one instance. But um, I, I guess we'll uh, set the stage here for what was happening on the show. So... Stetson takes his scripts, he gives the information to uh, the radio show, and they come up with the plot outline for uh, Superman and the Clan of the Fiery Cross. Uh, Jimmy Olsen is one of the main characters in this story. Um, Jimmy is the manager of the Unity Ball Club. It sounds like a volunteer position, but they treated this like it was a minor league team because they were hiring and firing neighborhood kids to pitch and to play. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I thought that was kind of odd. They were getting into the politics. They were getting into like the, the I don't know the, well, it may have just been a case of sports parents. I, I didn't play sports as much growing up. So I didn't have this problem. Um, no parent would have ever been jealous of my athletic ability growing up. <laughs> wow. I was the kid sitting on the side of the of the, the batting cage, pretending my bat was a lightsaber. Nice. <laughs> yeah, the ball was my training remote, and uh, I'd want to hit it back to him. But anyway, so uh, <laughs> that was why my parents eventually pulled me out. They said, "You're you're not even paying attention out there, are you?" <laughs> nope. Well, it probably saved you because you know then you never got replaced by another kid whose uncle happened to be. <laughs> the Grand Wizard of the KKK. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that that's a, a common problem, right? <laughs> Apparently. It was in the 40s, I take. Well, so in the 40s here, you, that, just, you said it there. We had a kid who uh, moves to town. Last name is Lee. And um, as it's Tommy Lee. Tommy Lee is the new um, star pitcher for Jimmy's Olsen's Unity Ball Club. Um I guess Tommy Lee, uh, I, I was picturing him growing up to marry Pam Anderson. and yeah, make that's right. Movies. But uh, <laughs> Tommy Lee um, and his father's new in town. For the first four or five episodes now, they don't tell you that Tommy's a minority. They don't come out and say it. Um, that's right. They, they don't. I've they been don't. wondering about that. Like, were we supposed to pick up? Like, I was wondering if I wasn't as racist as people in the 40s. Like, they would have instantly known. Well, the name Lee, uh, obviously, it, it, he, the character was Chinese. Yeah. Um, and the Tommy Lee character, voice actor, had no accent. Um, that, that was, but then his father, who's introduced in probably the fifth episode, they had talked about his father, but they didn't uh, – they, they mentioned that he was the town's bacteriologist for right. Metropolis. He had moved to Metropolis to be the bacteriologist. And I, I knew that – this was going to be the target for the clan that th this man and his son. But like you said, I was having trouble figuring out why, because Lee's a name that could go a lot of different directions. 
And they kept saying bacteriologist, like that was the indication of something, you know, being wrong. <laughs> That's right. I, I didn't remember. I was like, did the Klan hate uh Bacteriologist was germ theory somehow against their dogma. <laughs> that's exactly that's exactly right. No one's washing their hands in my operating room. No, 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 no. Oh gosh, that's disgusting. <laughs> Actually, that was the case for much of medical history. Yeah, that but. is exactly right. Strangely <laughs> enough, it came around with anesthetizing patients. They didn't figure out ether and stuff chloroform until about the time they realized they should wash their hands. So, if you want to well, ever travel back in time and you're injured, remember. 1870 is about the farthest back that you really want to go. <laughs> oh my! Have you guys been watching uh, Timeless on NBC? No, I didn't know it was out. I've been wanting to watch, but I haven't. Haven't seen it. Check yet. it out when you get a chance. I've enjoyed it. Um, I like I like tweeting with the cast and the fan groups on Monday nights. You can live tweet there if you like. Um, they have one episode where they go back in time. I want to say it's it's the 19th century. It's a war. They've done so many, I can't remember which one. But one of the main characters gets um, pulled aside by a doctor who wants to examine him. Uh, he's speaking in French, I believe, and the other actress can speak French, who's the historian character, Lucy, that I love, of course. I mean, she's a gorgeous historian. <laughs> and she tells him, uh, you need to get out of the tent. He's about to uh, give you an anal injection of mercury. Ooh. <laughs> so... Yeah, Anyways, uh, that's a bad, yeah. that makes for a bad day, I imagine. It did, it did. So the character uh, Tommy Lee uh, becomes the star pitcher, and he replaces another kid. Did you guys notice the worst insult that it seems like you could give somebody back then was to call him a sorehead? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to start taking a shot whenever they said sorehead, but I would have died of alcohol poisoning. <laughs> you but, would have. Uh, I would have. That was thrown around a lot. It's like he's just a sore head. So Jimmy's got to deal with this, you know, internal drama on his team of the two pitchers being jealous of one another. And uh, the, the first pitcher gets beamed by Tommy Lee because he crowds the plates and he goes home and talks to his Uncle Matt. Um, Uncle Matt, there's a line when they introduce him. This is this is who proves to be the clans. They actually called him the Grand Scorpion. Grand Scorpion. He had a blue scorpion on his robe. Right. Um, yeah, I'm not familiar with the Grand Scorpion like we are Grand Wizard. Uh, I don't know if that was changed for the story or if that was uh, something that uh, Stetson discovered as a title. But they described him as having fire in his eyes. I thought that was kind of interesting because I thought maybe he was going to turn out to be a metahuman and have heat vision. <laughs> That's how I would have written it probably. Right. The Grand Scorpion is an actual giant space scorpion that can transform. Exactly. That would have been awesome. And the only way you could find out is if you're a bacteriologist and you examine his skin cell. Yeah. All right. No, the bacteriologist has the cure. That's the problem. Oh. oh. <laughs> That's why he wants to kill him. Yeah. yeah. We, need to pitch, we need to pitch this uh, for the treatment. So, but when they described him as having fire in his eyes, I started thinking about Superman's powers. Um, Superman didn't actually have his heat vision in the stories set in 1946. Um, he was about to. Uh, he had x-ray vision and he had telescopic vision. Um, he essentially had whatever powers were convenient for the authors for a long time. It wasn't until uh, the Silver Age of comics in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. They said, hey, let's uh, depower this guy a little bit. We've added so many. Hmm. The uh, heat vision was actually introduced as a byproduct to the X-ray vision. Uh, it said that he melted objects with the heat of his X-ray vision. That's exactly. Yeah. Because he's only about eight years old at the time. For people who don't know, Superman didn't appear until 1938. So, And they were figuring things out still. Yeah. Um, he was flying at the time, if I'm not mistaken. He should have been. At one point, he jumped like an eighth of a mile. So Originally, he could jump an eighth of a mile. I guess that's technically not. I don't know. Well, he started, he, he started flying. It was soon after because he. Um, it was a matter of convenience for the animators on the cartoons. Right. It, it was easier to show him flying at one level and moving the background behind him rather than have him leap from rooftop to rooftop. But in the early cartoons, you can see that he doesn't fly. He leaps from uh, roof to roof. 
He leaps tall buildings in a single bound in the old uh, serials that run in front of the movies. He, he does, in fact, jump over buildings. Right, right. And it was laziness that gave Kal-El his power of flight. That's right. <laughs> Story-wise, they say it's solar sun absorption. We know it was because he was eating his pep cereal. That's correct. <laughs> Has to the, be uh, the sunshine cereal. <laughs> it was the yellow but, uh, sun power in the pep that kept him. It was radiation. Yeah. yeah. He, he used the, the yellow bed radiation of the sun to power himself. It was the 40s. You could put anything you wanted in food back then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that's that's true too. So I, I, one thing I noticed, one thing I noticed about the about the show so far, the the serials was just some of the motifs that that went along. The one of the major motifs was I mean even we talked about it a moment ago, the the team name, the baseball team name, the unity team. You know, so we've got the unity team. Then in episode 1, they're actually talking about the um Clan of the Fiery Cross, they're, they want one race, one religion. They're purists. You know, so there's, there's just kind of, it, it, I think it kind of correlates to some ways that we, we handled the anti-communist, uh, regime back then. We said, you know, we didn't want any of the, of the communist type stuff. So we used words, strong, strong descriptive words of how that was a negative time. I mean, or that was a negative, uh, thought process or belief. I thought this was really, uh, unique in that regard as well that it did a lot of the same thing it was um and, and the communism you know that the clan would have hated the communist right. as well right. obviously uh it doesn't fall under the true american idea they had and it was interesting uh since you talked about the motifs uh the voices in the show and when i say voices i mean the points of view expressed by the characters uh, the Klan had the point of view of one America as being one religion, one race, one color, like you said. So that's white, Christian, and not just Christian, because obviously there are many Christianities, not just a Christianity. But the, whatever went along with their viewpoints of a pure chosen people. Now, you get to Clark Kent, who no one knows it, but he's the... Uh, <laughs> smallest minority on the planet being the only Kryptonian. <laughs> Luckily, he looked like a, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Um, he uh, speaks that there is a man's, that, that, he says, the Klan is all about uh, what color you are, what church you go to, and that's not, um, that's un-American. The narrator even says it. They're un-American. So uh, the, the show is preachy in that manner and saying, um, you know, it's un-American to think like the Klan. The Klan says it's un-American to think like us. Um, it, it's a no true Scotsman fallacy because there is no uh, standard for what is American. You have laws to obey as an American, but we don't have one creed, idea, or set of principles among us. Um, that was something that stuck out to me. They were both presenting absolute ideas. Hmm. The Klan can't be American, and anyone... Who is, and then the uh, narrators would say anyone who is in the Klan can't be American. And I thought that was interesting because in researching what people had knew about it, because I was looking for connections and other things, not just listening to the show, looking in there, a lot of people were talking about how they were exposing all of this mystique about the Klan. And for me listening to the show, what I noticed the most was that it was really the attitudes like Perry White pretty much spends two episodes just bashing the crap out of the Grand Scorpion and how he's a, a rube and un-American and an idiot and a hate monger and, you know, no good can come of him. And at the same time, there's even a point when the clan, when Matt, or yeah, Matt, who's a Grand Scorpion, and his second in command pretty much have an argument that he tells him, oh my God, you don't actually believe this stuff, do you? It's all about peddling hate and making money, man. Right. <laughs> so I, I, for me, that was what got exposed. Now, of course, I'm looking at it with modern eyes, you know, no, you're, 70 I, years I, in the future. Were, yeah, and that's a great thing about um, radio is they rely completely on, um, you know, a verbal medium to get their message across. That's why you have the sound effects. You have the organ. Um, it's all about the listening. So every character is essentially a talking head for uh, an idea. Um we moved along from the 
So, so I guess we might have jumped ahead. For, yeah, I jumped. Sorry, I jumped there with the the whole hate monger thing. But we're hey, we're that's fine. That's fine. So they they capture the clan ends up getting the uh, the kid captured, Tommy Lee, because the uh, nephew of the Grand Scorpion, um, under duress, his uncle tells him to tell the entire clan that the kid tried to kill him with a baseball, and that's when they go after him and uh, they they burn a cross in his yard. That was the first thing they did, was burn the cross in his yard there in Metropolis. Which I never put those things together. I would have never pictured a cross burning in Metropolis. Just want to say that. Correct. They would uh, Superman, there's actually a panel. Uh, this is in the comics now. I don't know if this is a comic adaptation of this storyline or something else. But uh, you can find a picture. I, I guess just Google Superman hurling the cross. I think it is from this, but he's there's a picture of Superman in the comics hurling a burning cross into the sky, saying, I'll get rid of this. A super speed toss into the atmosphere. Wow. Yeah. I, I don't know the context. I'm not sure if it was this story or another story. But um, when he took on the KKK, um, so after the burning cross was in the yard by the KKK, um, Jimmy goes to the Lee's house and he brings Mr. Kent with him, you know, because Mr. Kent's the wisest man he knows, of course. Right. And they go talk. That's when you find out that uh, the Lee family is Chinese. When you meet um, Dr. Lee and uh, he's got the heavy accent. Um, his son, of course, sounds American the entire time. So you don't know where he's from. But they prepared to move away as soon as um, the cross was put on the yard. They say we're moving right now, and I, I, that was something that struck me. It was all it was. All it took was a burning cross for them to want to pick up and move. Um, that was probably reflective of the attitude and the fear that the clan brought to people back then. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that, and they also kind of touched on that in that same episode where. Um, where actually Clark was talking to uh, to Dr. Lee and saying, you've got to stand up and fight. Well, Dr. Lee was saying, look, I've got a I've got a younger daughter. I've got a son and I also have a wife to care about. Uh, I've seen what they've done in other parts of the country. I know I know what they'll do here to us if we stay. Exactly right. And on that note, if there had been no Superman, uh, the Lee family would have would have died. I mean, would have uh, later in the show. Um, so Tommy Lee is captured by the Klan. Well, first the first thing they did after the after the uh, burning cross on the yard. I don't know if this was common or if this was just kind of an odd story thing. They put an improvised explosive right. device <laughs> on the bicycle. On bicycle. <laughs> they went full Al Qaeda. They did. It was a it was an IED underneath the seat with a pressure switch. Like guys, I am not a demolitions munitions expert by any means, but I have to think that a in the 1940s you would notice a bomb on a bicycle. Yeah, I don't know. Um, either bombs were smaller or bikes were bigger. <laughs> One or the other. Well, I, maybe it was like a grenade size bomb. Um, I, I got to say though, Mister Kent, you you really. Um, you, you kind of fell asleep on the job with that one. Yeah, uh, you, You've got x-ray vision. You've got the super hearing. Um, you, you can't know that there's an IED on Jimmy Olsen's bike. <laughs> uh, well, I like that it. he does make the save, but then he gives up like the worst excuse ever. Like, uh, how'd you know about that? Never mind, Jimmy. We've got other things. He just buzzes <laughs> it off. <laughs> <laughs> like, no one, no one questioned how he jumped, like, through, through the window, out to the bike. He's like, get him ready. He did. He did. That was the first time he used his powers in yeah. the uh, this episode was to save Jimmy. So I mean, he made the save, but I, I, I gotta say, you didn't know that the bike was there. You, you gotta know that Jimmy's in trouble every episode, Clark. Yeah, um, that's that's the whole show at this point. The I mean, whole but show to be fair, in Batman v Superman, he didn't know there was a bomb in the wheelchair, so maybe it's just a blind spot for him. True, true. Of course, Lex Luthor, you know, 2016 knows how to counteract all his powers. Didn't he rig the wheelchair? Yeah, he did, but I don't know if he actually knew how to rig it. I'm just saying, if you're ever in danger and you're in a rolling device with wheels, with two wheels, four wheels, any kind of wheels, and there's a bomb, Superman is not going to save you. Call Batman. No, Superman will only help you after the fact. So if you've already blown up... Uh, yeah. 
I don't know. He may have been distracted by the piss on the lady's desk. I, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I, I watched that movie last night, actually, on HBO a little bit. Um, my, my wife kept shouting that Batman was cheating in the fight. <laughs> yeah, because Superman plays fair with his Kryptonian powers. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, she says, Batman's wearing a metal suit. That's cheating. <laughs> Like, you know, you do know Superman's nickname, right? I mean, right. And putting on a metal suit to fight Superman is kind of like dressing in paper armor to uh, test weapons or, you know, gunfire. Yeah, yeah, no. My manila breastplate will protect me from your gunfire, I guess. <laughs> That's, exactly. That's going to go over like a lead balloon. Oh, I see what you did there. Thanks, thanks. I try. Right. So, um, and then Tommy uh, is actually abducted by the clan after uh, Clark Kent tell convinces, like you said, he convinces Miss uh, Doctor Lee not to move. He he's never met the man before, but he decides to show up in his house and tell him he's making a mistake. And he uh, says, you know, I would suggest you need to stay here and fight because the clan is everywhere. So that was another bit of cultural uh, reference for the for the readers there that this clan, this racism, this idea, these people can be in your town. This is not just a foreign story in Metropolis. Yeah, I thought that was interesting when you were mentioning it earlier, where you said, "Well, it's in any town." You know, they knew they knew that the cross meant something because of how violent they've been in other places. So this kind of took it out of the realm of just fantasy being in Metropolis with Superman to putting it into the real world because we are all the people that they're talking about. We know what the clan is capable of in the outside real world. So moving, it's not just happening because it's a story. It could happen in your neighborhood. It could happen on your street. Anytime you've ever heard or seen a burning cross, this is what it means. Exactly. So uh, and Tommy, so Superman or Clark at that point guarantees Tommy's safety because he's going to put a single police officer outside their house. Right. Who isn't a Klansman? Uh, wait, well, as near as he can tell, yeah. <laughs> Who isn't a Klansman? That was an important qualifier, wasn't it? It was. <laughs> yeah. There were policemen, Klansmen. There, I mean, there was actually. I, I guess you guys caught that um, one of the Klansmen wanted the, an excuse to get the Lees out, had been looking for an excuse to get him out because one of their members wanted his job. That's right. right. So they don't hate bacteriologists. Just to be clear, listeners, one of the Klansmen was going to be the bacteriologist. He wanted that job. He'd been promised it. Right. Because apparently that's what the Grand Scorpion can promise you is a job as a bacteriologist. Well, and I also noted that, that um, he wasn't qualified for the job. Of course not. That's why I didn't have it. But he made it an issue of race. Right. Right. Or it could have been because the bacteriologist had the um, you know formula to take out the space scorpions with the heat I think vision. That's legit. That's that's legit. What it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And hey, they didn't even have to worry about a CGI budget. They could have described the scorpion in any proportions they wanted at that point. They really could have, and I think it would have held up. You know, that's the other. We talked about the commercials, but to me, I'm really surprised at how well a show from 70 years ago holds up today. Like, I think if you remastered that and re-released it, people would listen to it because it does not sound off or weird. Some of the accents are different, but not horribly. Right. Well, uh, DC Comics, you have the word. The three of us are happy to write the reboot to Superman and the Clan of the Fiery Cross. In this universe, we'll just stay with old Golden Age soups and write stories for them all day. I love Golden Age soups because you can invent whatever power you like for them. That's right. Also, uh, I've heard that the Batman movie's having some trouble. I am free to write and direct anytime, guys. Uh, I, I have, I've like, uh, what, 13 short film awards? Go ahead. It's all right. Don't, don't be shy. You, nice. can, you can send it to me. I'll read your drafts. <laughs> Let's collaborate. I, I love Batman. I love his family. I, I love all of them. I, I'm excited for uh, maybe exploring the past with the Red Hood, um, more with the Joker, all of that. I, I can't wait. It's going to it's going to be interesting to see rebirth uh, I think has it helped or hurt uh it helped Superman I think but I don't think for Batman it did anything cuz they've continued on kind of the same path that they had been ever since they did the new 52 so I'm fine uh doesn't bother me any I'm just interested to see like you said what happens with the Joker cuz they've done a really good job of making his story interesting again uh since 2012 so I guess you heard um Mel Gibson 
is in talks to direct Suicide Squad 2. Yeah, and I am super for that. The man knows how to do a story. I mean, he's got Oscars for directing. He knows how to direct action. He knows how to tell a story with the visual media. And he's played anti-heroes and villains a lot, so he knows how those characters should read. I think it's a good pick. That's off topic here, but... Just looking forward to uh, Deadshot or whichever character it is to uh, to make the William Wallace speech in Suicide Squad 2. Yeah. You know, they can take whatever it is. He can take our, uh, you know, weapons. He can take our uh, whatever, but they'll never take our freedom. Yeah, our suicide. You'll never take our suicide. We'll still be able to complete a mission with our deaths. Well, Deadshot, you're serving multiple life sentences. You lost your freedom quite a while ago. Right. Just as long as it doesn't have a big blue beam in the sky. 2016's over. We no longer have that. Oh, man. I, I yeah I, I might need to go back and rewatch some of that. I I, I don't really want to. <laughs> uh, uh, if you got it's a this is a, this is an interesting story because I, Perry White is the most fascinating character. To get back to the topic here, uh, Perry White is the most fascinating character to me because he puts out a bounty. Like he immediately hears about this and he's like, "This is bullshit. I'll give you a thousand dollars." I didn't do the conversion rates yet again, uh, but it's some money. And it's crazy that, that he did it. And then they came and they burned across and they pissed him off. And he was like $5,000. Right. He was not backing down. I mean, he might actually need to be. Um, Guys, a- I'm, I'm looking on saving.org slash inflation. And it's telling me that $1,000 in 1946 was $12,995.88 in 2016. Do you know what the average salary of a city bacteriologist? <laughs> One straw penny. That's right. <laughs> right. I don't know. Government service has great benefits, but they don't do it to get rich. So oh, you're I, telling I, me I'm a state employee. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what the average. Uh, I could look up a reporter's salary. No, maybe. It's, it's okay. I'm just assuming that that's quite a bit of money uh, that he was offering because it's quite a bit of money now. Right. It certainly is. So it was a big deal. Um, and Perry White, uh, to his credit, um, and the character, Perry White's always been a general, a generally positive character. Uh, yeah. Did you ever, if you ever watched Lois and Clark, that's one of my favorite uh, versions of Perry White, who's just a diehard Elvis fan and a Southerner for some reason. Because <laughs> it's the best version. You're right. It is like, is I like Dean Cain Superman. Seems to go ahead. They, they made it, they differ. Well, there's a, there's a tendency in comic books and superheroes now for every newspaper character authority figure to just be J. Jonah Jameson. Yeah. Uh, they, they want the, the jerk authority who's barking orders, you know, saying, print this, get me this. And th- that was something different. So I like that that was different. And I, and I've been happy with Lawrence Fishburne. Um, so that's another thing. Now we're all full, full circle. Uh, we go from 1946, then we go to 2016. And Lawrence Fishburne plays Perry White. He's African-American. <laughs> yeah. The client objects that, obviously. But it, it, it's crazy Christ. to think that, that they were offering this kind of money, even the story, because I feel like this is a parallel to real life. Like they weren't writing that far off base. No, not at all. What did you guys think about the conclusion you know, I, I thought the conclusion was fitting. I mean, I, I really did. I thought it was. It, it returned us back to the to the to the main motif here is, uh, which is, the clan is bad. So, I mean, the destruction of the clan was the goal ultimately, and it's it goes back to the good versus evil concept and how good when when you communicate good the the ideals of good, they can overcome the ideals of evil. So that's that's kind of what I took from it. So the question would be, how successful was Kennedy in his efforts to take down the Klan? Um, There's a 2005 book called Freakonomics. Um, Authors uh, Stephen Dubner and Stephen Levitt, they said that Kennedy was the single greatest contributor to weakening the Ku Klux Klan, the KKK. And um, are are you guys, did you hear uh, that some members actually quit because of this show? Yeah, yeah. I, I did. I didn't. I mean, of course, there's no record. I couldn't find like membership roles to prove that it happened. But yeah, I did see that a lot of them, because kids were playing and they were, of course, playing the game of Superman, wanted to kick the KKK's ass. And these parents are having, <laughs> who might be Klansmen, are watching their kids 
pretend to kick their ass as Superman. <laughs> so like, that was what I heard. And then there was mockery. And it also started a public discussion. I think that's going to be a lot of it, too, is people actually started turning, well, maybe stopped turning a blind eye to it and started saying, wait a minute, this is really happening? Like, I see it. And we see the cross, right. and that's a bad thing. But they do what the Lees want to do and move away from it. And now that they've been forced to confront it because it's on the radio, it's yeah. it's the biggest thing you know happening. And it, it's anecdotal, and I should probably put the disclaimer that a lot of Stetson Kennedy's work has been called into question for um, veracity because it, a lot of it is anecdotal. A lot of it is circumstantial. Um, I'm not even going to get into that debate here. But uh, what we have heard is that many Klansmen quit not because – they questioned the ideology or they questioned the ideas of a chosen race. It was just like the show embarrassed them. Right. Yeah. They, they, they weren't the good guys. They, in their minds, because no one who is evil believes that they're evil. It's that Lex Luthor syndrome. Um, they thought they were the good guys. And now they've also had some, which they really didn't expose a lot of clan secrets. Um, they did the salute in episode two, like we mentioned. Yeah, that was really it. That was really it, but it all, it took away their mystique and it was almost like, well, this isn't fun anymore. The people know the background. They know what's going on. Right. Um, you might call it an early WikiLeaks. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's, it felt that kind of way. But there was a lot of things that talked about how much they destroyed the myth and the handshakes and the names and the titles. And really, there was not that much of it. If you listen to the actual show, it's on YouTube. It'll be in the show notes. It doesn't happen like that. There's In episode two, there's that. And then there's a few disagreements where they show the different, like he was saying, the voices of the clan, the different men that join the clan for different reasons. Some it's for greed, some for a place to belong, some because of hatred. And it kind of disperses each one of those ideas and puts them at odds with each other, too. And I think that was the greater showing than showing the handshakes and stuff, because there's only the one salute that Shalom described, really, that seems to be of any mystique. I think people may be confusing um, Stetson's work in his book with what was in the show. Uh, the book was released. Now, it's The Clan Unmasked. I've got the reprint from 2011 from the, the University of Alabama Press. Roll Tide. <laughs> Just kidding. I could care less about sports ball. My family does, though. My sister went to Alabama. It's a great school. But uh, in The Clan Unmasked, um, which was published in 1954, so within 10 years of the show, he published The Clan Unmasked. And I think that was the source for all the secret knowledge of the clan. I see. But the, uh, the membership really started dwindling. Now, you can't. I'll, I'll tell you guys the uh, the real reason that the clan's membership started to really dwindle. The cracks were already showing by 1946. Right. Okay. You can read this on the Southern Law and Poverty Center's website on their KKK page where they talk about the demographics and the numbers. I won't go into specifics, but it was really um, scandals that took down the clan, abuse, um, abuse, of violence killing, sexual, when all that was brought out in the open, which was probably more the late 20s and the 30s, after their birth of a nation reawakening that we talked about, that was where the cracks really started to show and the Klan started to become uh, less affluent and less dominating in powerful positions. Right. And then also, I, I just want to touch on this because I'm not an expert like you, so I'm asking, I'm not saying that... Um, they had a, a deal with a lot of the war effort. One, there was the integration of the armed forces, where they started having you know soldiers of different races fighting together, if not in the same unit, at least on the same front. And they sure also moving back, the war was over. America was in a better place, and we were changing. That's how the show actually, I feel like, came to be. Was up until 1946, obviously Superman is focusing on Nazis and the Japanese Empire. So they needed a hero, or, or they need a villain. They found their villain when Kennedy brought them the Klan. And then afterwards, it was a communist. So America still has issues with racism, obviously, but they are less of an issue than the issues with imperialism and Nazi ideals and then communism. Well, when I was reading about the show before I came on with you guys today, and I, I've loved talking with you guys, it's great. Um, 
I was reading that one of the main reasons they jumped at the chance for uh, Stetson Kennedy's pitch was they were just in need of some villains. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, there you go. Okay. Superman didn't quite have the extensive rogues gallery we take for granted today. And also, uh, you you touched on something really important in comics history uh, because Captain America had a lot of this as well. Um, villains were more grounded in reality. Uh, if it was, if this story was printed today, you probably would have the Grand Scorpion with powers and shape-shifting abilities, probably. But they were, unless I'm mistaken, they were just regular vanilla people whose only power was hate. Right. No, there's a lot of that. That's why you have the Joker and you have Lex Luthor and you you have uh, the Red Skull, even though he's different, he's still a Nazi. That's his badness. Having the face is just a side effect. I like I like that you you kind of mentioned. A point earlier about how their power their power was really rooted in hate. You know, one thing that that uh, Chuck, the the kid who is kicked off a baseball team, um, when he introduces the the topic to his uncle, his uncle Matt, uh, the Grand Scorpion, he the question that Matt the the uh, Grand Scorpion asks is, is he like us Americans? You know, like I thought that was a real powerful question because the answer was. Well, they're citizens. Yeah, he says they're citizens. And did you hear what he said right after that? Um, Uncle Matt says something about, you know, true Americans. And uh, the kid says, but the Constitution says. Right. And he cuts him off with that. He cuts him off there and says, quiet, we're going to change all that. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's what's great. Is they really do portray the Klan as not caring about American ideals, as making them as un-American as they can in the eyes of a listener, I think, at the time period. You're right. That's all it's about. It's not about these handshakes. It's not about the. It's about the hate, the greed, and being un-American and what it means to truly be un-American in the eyes of the writers and in the eyes of Kennedy. Yeah. So, I don't know. But overall, I thought it was an interesting story to find out that this is how a vast portion of the country came to terms or at least learned about the KKK. I mean, of course, they had it portrayed in a different light with Birth of a Nation, like you were saying. They were the heroes of Birth of a Nation. Right. And uh, the Klan had been riding on that high since 1915, 1916. Um, It had so much legitimacy, like you already mentioned, uh, this was the first film to be shown in the White House, inside the White House, by Woodrow Wilson, and uh, I don't know if you guys – politicians have been backpedaling on their statements for so long. Um, Wilson was quoted – and this quote – I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it to you guys. This quote on Wilson's reaction to birth of the nation can't be verified just because he denied it so many times. But it's been reportedly uh, – it's been recorded that he said the following on birth of the nation – it's like writing history with lightning. And my only regret is that it is all so terribly true. That was his response to Birth of a Nation, which depicted uh, the Negro Party fictionally trying to take over the country so they could rape white women. And uh, I got that quote sourced from, you know, PBS, uh, Hollywood's White House, the International Movie Database, Time Magazine, you know, some of these fake news sources. Yeah, well, you know, I couldn't find, I can't find the primary. I would really love to find the primary where it actually came from, but I think it's probably close to true because. Well, not, I can't say if it, I can't say if it is or not because immediately yeah. talk about the primary just as close to the time it was allegedly said, he had, he started distancing himself from it. He issued a statement that said he had been unaware of the nature of the film. I never actually endorsed the film. Um, so we're still divided on its veracity, but I got to say that his claims of ignorance um, have to come under heavy scrutiny Yeah. Uh, for two reasons. I already said one, the author of the novel was his good friend, Thomas Dixon. So, you know, his best friend wrote a book. He apparently had no idea what it was about, but That's still right. had it framed in his house. And then there was the fact that the director, uh, Griffith, featured a quote, and this is a silent film, so they've got the placards, you've got to picture that. One of the placards was a quote from Woodrow Wilson himself in, in Birth of a Nation. Oh. <laughs> and uh, that quote was, uh, the white men were roused by a mere instinct of self-preservation. 
until at last there had sprung into existence a great Ku Klux Klan, a veritable empire of the South, to protect the southern country. Uh, that, I, I totally believe he said it. Uh, not, well, that's not what I was. That's not where I was going. I was going to say that uh, it's crazy to think that the president could say that and get away with it, and especially because from a film perspective, from a filmmaker perspective, it's obvious that the Negro Party is portraying the whites of the South of Reconstructionism and all that as the same as black people from the period. They are putting them in the same basket. And saying that it was oppressing the white people, yes. Exactly. You're not real white people. We're talking about true American. They're giving them the same kind of treatment. And that's what the film is saying to me. I'm not a film studies major, so I don't know. So Wilson, he claimed that he did not recognize racist intentions. He claimed he did not endorse the movie. But this is the same film he had shown in his house based on a book written by his friend. And his own words were projected on the screen itself. So... You guys can draw your own conclusions. Um, if you want to see the uh, talk about the primary source, I've actually got a copy of the placard um, on my page article, um, buzzfeed.com again slash Jay Sandlin. Um, just look for the four insanely racist U.S. moments among my Star Wars book reviews and the Walking Dead articles, <laughs> things that are just on my mind at various times. Yeah. But um that was what uh, – the importance of that context is just how it established the Klan as legitimate heroes in the media. And then this broadcast is so important because it dispelled that notion and made them absolute villains. That's crazy. I mean it's great. Thank you for coming on and sharing that with us, man, because uh, I mean we, we look at things that we research them, but we're not historians. That's the title of the show. So it's always great to have someone like you that we can reach out to and is willing to come on and talk about it with a little bit more knowledge and a lot more passion. Oh, this is awesome. I'd love to come back on again. Uh, next week, I will be in uh, at Troy University in Alabama. I'll be speaking on uh, Marxism and the golden age of social history and the study of American slavery. Um, I already talked about uh, Outbreak Mutiny. Volume one of the novel comics will be released uh, next month. The date will coincide with the art being finished, so I'm excited about that. Uh, Just keep track of me on jsandlinwriter.com or on Twitter, uh, jsandlinwriter on Twitter. It's J, the initial, J Sandlin, S-A-N-D-L-I-N, and then writer, as in what I do. (laughs) <laughs> and those will all be in the show notes guys so if you just click down below look expand you'll be able to find them and we'll also tweet out some links to all this stuff as it comes out and as he tours excellent Jay I also want to say thank you for coming on today and kind of just chatting with us and you know just more educating us on this topic and and many others I mean I think we got we got an opportunity to kind of get to know you a little bit better and then also um, discuss a couple yeah. of other topics too it's been so great. I've gotten to know you guys on Twitter and um, it, hearing the voice and uh, you know, it, it's great. I, I hope we can do this anytime you like. Yeah. Excellent. I've got to find out if Batman fought the communist. I know he has KGB. So maybe we can find out if he brought down the Berlin Wall for the world and then we'll have you back I'll for throw, that. I will throw this out as an idea for communism. I just wrote an article last week. Um, it's on my BuzzFeed page. It's called When Negan met Stalin and how Negan from the walking dead was the comic version of Joseph Stalin during the zombie Walker apocalypse. There you go. I like it. I like it. Shalom loves the TV show. I tried the comics before the TV show. So I I think we can make this work, Jay. Looking forward to this. Anytime, guys. Anytime. Anytime. All right, Jay. Well, we appreciate your time and let's do this again. And uh, we, DC, if you're listening, we've got the Grand Scorpion comic ready to go. <laughs> That's right. We can undo all of Infinite Crisis. I'm willing to undo Flashpoint. I'm willing to undo anything you need me to undo for you to help you back. Not Wonder Woman, though. Wonder Woman's going good. You know. All right. We'll catch you next week, actually. That's right. This is, this is a bonus episode. So we'll be back next week. That's correct. All right. Well, you want to tease on what the theme will be next week? No, let them wait. They're already getting a bonus episode. (laughs) All right.